This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Today's reading by Alex Foster, www.alexfoster.me.uk. A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, with Strictures on Political and Moral Subjects, by Mary Wollstonecraft, with a biographical sketch of the author. Part 1. A Brief Sketch of the Life of Mary Wollstonecraft Mary Wollstonecraft was born in 1759. Her father was so great a wanderer that her place of birth is uncertain. She supposed, however, it was London or Epping Forest. At the later place she spent the first five years of her life. In early youth she exhibited traces of exquisite sensibility, soundness of understanding and decision of character. But her father being a despot in his family, and her mother one of his subjects, Mary derived little benefit from their parental training. She received no literary instructions, but such as were to be had in an ordinary day-school. Before her sixteenth year she became acquainted with Mr. Clare, a clergyman, and Miss Frances Blood, the latter two years older than herself, who, possessing good taste and some knowledge of the fine arts, seemed to have given the first impulse to the formation of her character. At the age of nineteen she left her parents, and resided with a Mrs. Dawson for two years, when she returned to the parental roof to give attention to her mother, whose ill-health made her presence necessary. On the death of her mother, Mary bade a final adieu to her father's house, and became an inmate of F. Blood. Thus situated, their intimacy increased, and a strong attachment was reciprocated. In 1783 she commenced a day-school at Newington Green, in conjunction with her friend F. Blood. At this place she became acquainted with Dr. Price, to whom she became strongly attached. The regard was mutual. In 1792 she removed to Paris, where she became acquainted with Gilbert Imlay of the United States, and from this acquaintance grew an attachment which brought the parties together, without legal formalities to which she objected on account of some family embarrassments in which he would thereby become involved. The engagement was, however, considered by her of the most sacred nature, and they formed the plan of emigrating to America, where they should be enabled to accomplish it. These were the days of Robespierrean cruelty, and Imlay left Paris for Havre, whither, after a time, Mary followed him. They continued to reside there until he left Havre for London, under pretense of business, and with a promise of rejoining her soon at Paris, which, however, he did not, but in 1795 sent for her to London. In the meantime she had become the mother of a female child, whom she called Frances in commemoration of her early friendship. Before she went to England she had some gloomy forebodings that the affections of Imlay had waned, if they were not estranged from her. On her arrival these forebodings were sorrowfully confirmed. His attentions were too formal and constrained to pass unobserved by her penetration, and though he ascribed his manner and his absence to business duties, she saw his affection for her was only something to be remembered. To use her own expression, love, dear delusion. Rigorous reason has forced me to resign, and now my rational prospects are blasted, just as I have learned to be contented with rational enjoyments. To pretend to depict her misery at this time would be futile. The best idea can be formed of it from the fact that she had planned her own destruction, from which Imlay prevented her. She conceived the idea of suicide a second time, and threw herself into the Thames. She remained in the water until consciousness forsook her, but she was taken up and resuscitated. After diverse attempts to revive the affections of Imlay with sundry explanations and professions on his part, through the lapse of two years she resolved finally to forgo all hope of reclaiming him, and endeavour to think of him no more in connection with her future prospects. 
In this she succeeded so well that she afterwards had a private interview with him, which did not produce any painful emotions. In 1796 she revived or improved an acquaintance which commenced years before with William Goodwin, author of Political Justice, and other works of great notoriety. Though they had not been favourably impressed with each other on their former acquaintance, they now met under circumstances which permitted a mutual and just appreciation of character. Their intimacy increased by regular and almost imperceptible degrees. The partiality they conceived for each other was, according to her biographer, in the most refined style of love. It grew with equal advances in the mind of each. It would have been impossible for the most minute observer to have said who was before or who after. One sex did not take the priority which long-established custom has awarded it, nor the other overstep that delicacy which is so severely imposed. Neither party could assume to have been the agent or the patient, the toil-spreader or the prey in the affair. When, in the course of things, the disclosure came, there was nothing in a manner for either to disclose to the other. Mary lived but a few months after her marriage, and died in childbed, having given birth to a daughter who is now known to the literary world as Mrs. Shelley, the widow of Percy Bysshe Shelley. We can scarcely avoid regret that one of such splendid talents and high-toned feelings should, after the former seemed to have been fully developed, and the latter had found an object in whom they might repose, after their eccentric and painful efforts to find a resting-place, that such an one should at such a time be cut off from life is something which we cannot contemplate without feeling regret. We can scarcely repress that murmur that she had not been removed ere clouds darkened her horizon, or that she had remained to witness the brightness and serenity which might have succeeded. But thus it is. We may trace the cause to antisocial arrangements. It is not individuals but society which must change it, and that not by enactments, but by a change in public opinion. The authoress of The Rights of Woman was born April 1759, died September 1797. That there may be no doubt regarding the facts in this sketch, they are taken from a memoir written by her afflicted husband. In addition to many kind things which he has said of her, he was not blinded to imperfections in her character, is that she was lovely in her person, and in the best and most engaging sense, feminine in her manners. A letter to Monsieur Talion Perigord, the late Bishop of Autun. Sir, having read with great pleasure a pamphlet which you have lately published on national education, I dedicate this volume to you, the first dedication that I have ever written, to induce you to read it with attention, and, because I think that you will understand me, which I do not suppose many pert whittlings will who may ridicule the arguments they are unable to answer. But, sir, I carry my respect for your understanding still farther, so far that I am confident you will not throw my work aside, and hastily conclude that I am in the wrong, because you did not view the subject in the same light yourself. And pardon my frankness, but I must observe that you treated it in too cursory a manner, content to consider it as it had been considered formerly, when the rights of man not to advert to woman were trampled on as chimerical. I call upon you, therefore, now to weigh out what I have advanced respecting the rights of woman and national education, and I call with the firm tone of humanity. For my arguments, sir, are dictated by a disinterested spirit. I plead for my sex, not for myself. Independence I have long considered as the grand blessing of life, the basis of every virtue, and independence I will ever secure by contracting my wants, though I were to live on a barren heath. It is, then, an affection for the whole human race that makes my pen dart rapidly along to support what I believe to be the cause of virtue, 
and the same motive leads me earnestly to wish to see woman placed in a station in which she could advance, instead of retarding the progress of those glorious principles that give a substance to morality. My opinion, indeed, respecting the rights and duties of woman, seems to flow so naturally from these simple principles that I think it scarcely possible, but that some of the enlarged minds who formed your admirable constitution will coincide with me. In France there is undoubtedly a more general diffusion of knowledge than in any part of the European world, and I attribute it in a great measure to the social intercourse which has long subsisted between the sexes. It is true, I utter my sentiments with freedom, that in France the very essence of sensuality has been extracted to regale the voluptuary, and a kind of sentimental lust has prevailed, which, together with the system of duplicity that the whole tenor of their political and civil government taught, have given a sinister sort of sagacity to the French character, properly termed finesse, and a polish of manners that injures the substance by hunting sincerity out of society. And modesty, the fairest garb of virtue, has been more grossly insulted in France than even in England, till their women have treated as prudish that attention to decency which brutes instinctively observe. Manners and morals are so nearly allied that they have often been confounded, but though the former should only be the natural reflection of the latter, yet when various causes have produced factitious and corrupt manners which are very early caught, morality becomes an empty name. The personal reserve and sacred respect for cleanliness and delicacy in domestic life, which French women almost despise, are the graceful pillars of modesty. But far from despising them, if the pure flame of patriotism have reached their bosoms, they should labour to improve the morals of their fellow-citizens by teaching men not only to respect modesty in women, but to acquire it themselves, as the only way to merit their esteem. Contending for the rights of women, my main argument is built on this simple principle, that if she be not prepared by education to become the companion of man, she will stop the progress of knowledge, for truth must be common to all, or it will be inefficacious with respect to its influence on general practice. And how can woman be expected to co-operate unless she know why she ought to be virtuous? Unless freedom strengthen her reason till she comprehend her duty, and see in what manner it is connected with her real good. If children are to be educated to understand the true principle of patriotism, their mother must be a patriot and the love of mankind from which an orderly train of virtues spring can only be produced by considering the moral and civil interest of mankind. But the education and situation of woman at present shuts her out from such investigations. In this work I have produced many arguments which to me were conclusive, to prove that the prevailing notion respecting a sexual character was subversive of morality, and I have contended that to render the human body and mind more perfect chastity must more universally prevail, and that chastity will never be respected in the male world till the person of a woman is not, as it were, idolized, when little virtue or sense embellish it with the grand traces of mental beauty, or the interesting simplicity of affection. Consider, sir, dispassionately these observations, for a glimpse of this truth seemed to open before you when you observed that to see one half of the human race excluded by the other from all participation of government was a political phenomenon that, according to abstract principles, it was impossible to explain. If so, on what does your constitution rest? If the abstract rights of man will bear discussion and explanation, those of woman, by a parity of reasoning, will not shrink from the same test. Though a different opinion prevails in this country, built on the very arguments which you use to justify the oppression of women, prescription. Consider, I address you as a legislator, 
whether, when men contend for their freedom and to be allowed to judge for themselves respecting their own happiness, it is not inconsistent and unjust to subjugate woman, even though you firmly believe that you are acting in the manner best calculated to promote their happiness. Who made man the exclusive judge if woman partake with him the gift of reason? In this style argue tyrants of every denomination, from the weak king to the weak father of a family. They are all eager to crush reason, yet always assert that they usurp its throne only to be useful. Do you not act a similar part when you force all women, by denying them civil and political rights, to remain immured in their families, groping in the dark? For surely, sir, you will not assert that a duty can be binding which is not founded on reason. If, indeed, this be their destination, arguments may be drawn from reason and thus augustly supported, the more understanding women acquire, the more they will be attached to their duty, comprehending it, for unless they comprehend it, unless their morals be fixed on the same immutable principles as those of man, no authority can make them discharge it in a virtuous manner. They may be convenient slaves, but slavery will have its constant effect, degrading the master and abject dependent. But if women are to be excluded without having a voice from a participation of the natural rights of mankind, prove first, to ward off the charge of injustice and inconsistency, that they want reason, else this flaw in your new constitution, the first constitution founded on reason, will ever show that man must in some shape act like a tyrant, and tyranny in whatever part of society it rears its brazen front will ever undermine morality. I have repeatedly asserted, and produced what appeared to me irrefragable arguments drawn from matters of fact, to prove my assertion that women cannot by force be confined to domestic concerns, for they will, however ignorant, intermeddle with more weighty affairs, neglecting private duties only to disturb, by cunning tricks, the orderly plans of reason which rise above their comprehension. Besides, whilst they are only made to acquire personal accomplishments, Men will seek for pleasure in variety, and faithless husbands will make faithless wives. Such ignorant beings, indeed, will be very excusable. When, not taught to respect public good, nor allowed any civil right, they attempt to do themselves justice by retaliation. The box of mischief thus opened in society, what is to preserve private virtue, the only security of public freedom and universal happiness? Let there be, then, no coercion established in society and the common law of gravity prevailing, the sexes will fall into their proper places. And now that more equitable laws are forming your citizens, marriage may become more sacred. Your young men may choose wives from motives of affection, and your maidens allow love to root out vanity. The father of a family will not then weaken his constitution and debase his sentiments by visiting the harlot, nor forget in obeying the call of appetite the purpose for which it was implanted. And the mother will not neglect her children to practice the arts of coquetry, when sense and modesty secure her the friendship of her husband. But till men become attentive to the duty of a father, it is vain to expect women to spend that time in their nursery, which they, wise in their generation, choose to spend at their glass. For this exertion of cunning is only an instinct of nature to enable them to obtain indirectly a little of that power of which they are unjustly denied a share. For if women are not permitted to enjoy legitimate rights, they will render both men and themselves vicious, to obtain illicit privileges. I wish, sir, to set some investigations of this kind afloat in France, and should they lead to a confirmation of my principles, when your constitution is revised, the rights of woman may be respected, if it be fully proved that reason calls for this respect, and loudly demands justice for one half of the human race. I am, sir, yours respectfully, M. W.
End of section. Recorded in Nottingham, England, on the 12th of November, 2006. By Alex Foster. www.alexfoster.me.uk